Welcome to the English Week Podcast, the voice of Widener University English and Creative Writing, hosted by Jim Esch. In this podcast series, we celebrate English language literature and creative writing and its impact on human experience. We will be speaking with faculty, students, alumni, writers, and special guests about their scholarship, teaching, creative practice, and community engagement activities. If you love reading and writing, you've come to the right podcast. For our inaugural episode, I thought it most fitting to interview our fearless leader, Dr. Janine Utel, Chair of the English and Creative Writing Department at Widener. Janine is an award-winning writer, teacher, and editor. Her areas of interest include modernist studies, multimodal narrative, including film and comics, life writing, and the intersections among gender, sexuality, affect, intimacy, and ethics. She is the Homer C. Nearing Jr. Distinguished Professor in English and Creative Writing at Widener, and also serves as an affiliated faculty member in the Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies program. Janine Utel, welcome to the English Suite. Wow, thank you. Thanks for having me. I don't know if I knew this was like the inaugural episode, but this is a real This is honor. it. There, this, we have to start somewhere, and I thought we should just <laughs> start with you because um, you helped me to, to develop the whole concept for the podcast, honestly. And I wanted to start our conversation by taking up the name of the podcast, which I believe you came up with. It was your suggestion. I th- I liked it immediately. I thought it would be just such a fitting name for this venture, but I'm curious as to why that name popped into your head as a title for the podcast series. Sure. Well, I'll, so then as long as we're acknowledging folks and, you know, Jim, of course, I want to acknowledge publicly, loudly, all of the amazing stuff that you do for English and creative writing at Widener, including things like this podcast, which is so creative and such a great way to build community and to sort of share all the work that we're doing. Um, the So for those who might not know, the English suite is um, a suite of offices in the on the third floor of Kapelski, uh, the home of humanities and social sciences at Widener. And we were on the third floor. We occupy like a corner of the of the building. And it's a suite of faculty offices and sort of a common space. And at one point I was having a conversation with another faculty member in English, Mark Graybill. And Mark was saying, oh, it would be great if the English suite weren't so drab and dreary. And is there a way that we can make it more of a welcoming space for students and a place where people want to come and have conversations and just hang out? And so we worked on sort of, you know, refreshing it, carpet, um, posters, posters from uh, the State Street reading series that Jim and Michael Kosharal used to run in media and tried to really make it sort of a welcoming communal type space. And I think it's sort of become that. And lots of great conversations happening there. Um, you know, we're, we play records, we have open houses and coffee with visiting writers. We just sort of stand in each other's doorways and hang out and talk about our teaching and talk about what we're working on. And especially once we went online, because of course, here we are still having the COVID-19 pandemic, um, that space 
it felt very important to sort of replicate that space or continue to sustain that space um, in sort of the digital context. And so, Jim, your idea for the podcast, bringing everybody together to sort of converse about what we're doing, you know, sort of recreating that space in a way that, you know, is not necessarily the physical space, but can kind of mirror that community spirit that we've been working to, you know, really kind of flourish and keep going. That was sort of why I was thinking about it. So eventually, hopefully we'll be back in the actual English suite. Um, but the spirit of the suite lives on in this podcast. And of course, you know, when we, we're all back together, we can like sit in it and listen to the podcast and that will be fun. <laughs> We could make the podcast from the English suite, the actual English suite. <laughs> yeah, that's that's that was my thinking as to why it was a perfect name for it. Because I, since COVID nineteen shut us down and we we all have to teach remotely, I just have missed those conversations so much. I miss all my colleagues. I just would enjoy coming to my office and just like overhearing people's conversations or when students would pop in and. It just the shop talk that goes on. It's lots of water cooler conversations, even without the yeah. water cooler. I don't think we have a water cooler in there anymore. But no, we have the up. we have the weird refrigerator that hasn't worked for years. Right, and the turntable <laughs> put stuff on, on it. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I just miss all those conversations, and this is at least an attempt to um, replicate that and share with everyone else out there what we're doing all the cool yeah. stuff that people are into. Let me segue over to our first topic. And I, I wanted to pick something that was sort of timely because you just taught a senior seminar in the fall. And mm -hmm. this is about an author that you are an expert at. And I wanted to sort of explore your interest in this author and talk a little bit about the seminar and so forth. So the author is mm -hmm. James Joyce. And I was kind of curious how you got interested in James Joyce in the first place as a student? And was he sort of your first main focus as a scholar? No. No. <laughs> no. Oh, that's such a great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, no, I really, I didn't like, I didn't like Joyce. I really didn't like Portrait of the Artist as a young man. Um, like, um, and the first time I read Ulysses, it made me so angry. <laughs> It's like, I like to think I'm a smart person and this is just making me feel really stupid. <laughs> and, you know, the famous first three chapters, you know, notoriously begin with Stephen Dedalus, whom I remembered disliking intensely from reading poetry. And I'm like, I don't want this. And so I read it in graduate school. I read it while I was doing my master's. And graduate schools can already be kind of a fraught period where you are, where it's making very visible to you all of the ways in which you're kind of deficient and intellectually lacking. And it takes a while to sort of get your confidence. And so, you know, I, I had a hard time with the book at first. And then what happened then? Oh, then I read it again. So I finished my master's and then I moved to a different institution and I wound up at the City University of New York. And I read it again and I was like, okay, I'm enjoying trying to figure this out. And I, you know, maybe it was a, maybe it was a different group of students. The seminar, you know, the seminar environment was a little bit different. So I felt more like um, there was a, a space to kind of stretch out a bit and try to figure out what was going on. Maybe it was just being a few years older and knowing more stuff. And so I came back to it 
And then I wrote my dissertation under Edmund Epstein, who was a really well-known, just major Joyce figure. Um, and he was a very generous, giving, kind, open-hearted person who was also like a genius. Like he was one of he was one of those quiz kids, you know, the the radio quiz shows for kids in the 40s and 50s. He was actually one of those people. And he was just fabulous. And so my dissertation was on um, funerals in modernist literature. And so I was like, okay, I can, you know, there's the, the chapter in Ulysses, the Hades episode, where the main character, Leopold Bloom, goes to a funeral for his friend, Patty Dignam. And that's one of the first big events of the book. And it's also one of the first times you see him in community. You see him with other people. You see him with other men who are also going to the funeral. They're all in a carriage together, riding through Dublin to get to Glasnevin Cemetery. Um, they're talking. It's when we begin to learn certain things about Bloom, like how the other men perceive his marriage to his wife, Molly. It's where we learn about uh, the one of the places where we begin to see more about the death of his son, Rudy, 11 years prior. It's when we learn about Bloom's father's suicide. And, you know, all of these elements of this character are sort of woven into this sort of setting that's simultaneously very public and collective and communal, but also, and social, but also, um, you know, sort of toggling back and forth between the sacred and the banal and the mundane, right? So Bloom is going to the cemetery and they're going to go to this funeral and undertake this ritual of burial. But he's also thinking like, well, you know, why don't we bury coffins standing upright? They would take up less room. And do people smell like turnips when they're decaying? And like all kinds of stuff like this. And that really spoke to me, that uh, tension dynamic between the everyday and the transcendent. And getting to know more about this character and sort of being, you know, sort of having little seeds of information about him being sort of planted for me that I then got to watch grow over the course of the novel. That way of reading and those themes and that sort of engagement with the narrative and the character really brought the novel to life for me. And so then did my chapter, did the final chapter of my dissertation on Ulysses, mostly Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake, and then um, when I got to Widener and I started to think about what I wanted to do next, did I want to turn my dissertation into a book, which is what a lot of people do with their dissertation. I thought, no, <laughs> it's not a, this would not make a good book. I don't want to do that. So I wrote some articles out of it. And then there was like a section in my dissertation in that last chapter on Joyce, where I had sort of this throwaway line about why does Leopold Bloom uh, facilitate his wife having an affair, um, which is for me what the novel is actually about in a lot of ways. You know, it's famously a novel about a guy going on a walk. He leaves the house at like nine or 10 a.m. and he walks Dublin until 2 a.m. and then he comes home, gets into bed, and then that's the end. But that's why he's doing it. He's walking Dublin so as to not go home so that his wife can sleep with another man. Why is he facilitating that? Right, exactly. That's what my book was about. So I took this little kernel from the last chapter of my dissertation and said, this is the book I want to write. And that turned into James Joyce and the Revolt of Love. And so for me, the book turned out to be, uh, you know, an exploration of intimacy. And that was, that's why I keep going back to it. 
So that's that's really interesting that you wrote your dissertation in part about a book that you initially didn't like much at all. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, you know, and I've I've explored this idea about the book in a few different places. And I think about it every time I teach it. So the first time I taught Ulysses is as part of Widener's English major senior seminar. It was actually a class of all women and really, really fantastic students. They were just so great. And this must have been 2004. And then at the same time, I was leading the Ulysses reading group at the Rosenbach Museum and Library in Philadelphia. And that was obviously a very different population. You know, it was mostly older people, people who'd actually gone through the things that the Blooms go through in the novel. They had lost children. They'd experienced death. Um, you know, they'd experienced some of the precarity that, you know, people go through when they've been in like long-term relationships, you know, marriages that have ups and downs. And to teach the novel to those two different groups at the same time was really pretty amazing because you have younger people just coming to the book. You have younger people, you know, watching Stephen Dedalus trying to figure out his life, not 100% getting what's going on with the Blooms. Like they haven't lived through this stuff. This is not part of their experience. And that's, you know, it's not that it's alienating. It's that it's a window into a whole other stage of life that they just haven't gotten to yet. And one of the things I've said repeatedly to them and since is read, you're going to have to read it again. You know, you're going to have to read it like every 10 years. <laughs> and I want to say as a sidebar, I kind of feel like I am friends with an alum on Facebook. And I kind of feel like when, let's see, she did the Ulysses Senior Seminar with me maybe four years ago. And I kind of feel like I just saw a stack of Ulysses and Ulysses annotated and all kinds of stuff on her Facebook since her saying, oh, time to do it again. So if you're listening, Kimberly Roberts, I believe, <laughs> I think maybe you felt like you needed to go back to Ulysses. Yeah, it's one of those books that bears rereading. I think you're not going to get it the first pass at all. Yeah. I've only read it once myself. Like my, my brief backstory with Ulysses is I have the, uh, the Modern Library edition oh. this was my father's copy and it has, someone gave it to him for christmas and it has his signature in there so this was on all the books that he he used to have a lot of book of the month club titles and like modern library stuff all the books ended up in my bedroom for some reason there were two bookcases so i would stare at these books all the time and and like this novel intrigued me so i think i started picking up maybe early in my undergraduate years i dipped into it mm -hmm. just out of curiosity and i didn't i got stuck really fast maybe one or two <laughs> chapters in and then i i eventually did finish it at some point in my 20s i think it was after grad school i finished it mm -hmm. probably in my mid-20s but that's this is the only copy that i've read now i know there's better editions out there than this this probably has a lot of errors in it and things but I'll never get rid of that copy because it's, you know, it was my dad's. The book's kind of special for that reason. But I, I, I did start rereading it again because I read this book and finished it over the break. It's called Recovering Your Story, Proust, Joyce, Wolf, Faulkner, and Morris, and Understanding the Self Through Reading Five Great Modern Writers by Arnold Weinstein, who was a professor of comparative literature at 
Brown. And uh, I read another book by Weinstein called A Scream Goes Through the House and loved it. It was sort of like uh, about sort of personating literature and what it tells you about human nature and so forth. So I got this book, I think when it came out in 2006, and I started reading it and he, he kind of goes author by author. So, and the chapters are very long and he sort of guides you through these very difficult modernist texts, right? Mm -hmm. So the first chapter was on, was on Proust. And you you know that I was reading Proust for years and years and years. Yes, I was and just then, thinking about that. Right. And so I got to the point at which I had left off in Proust and then I didn't want to keep reading his chapter and I didn't want him to spoil anything for me. So I put the book on pause, put it away mm -hmm. and then finished Proust, which took about 10 more years. <laughs> And then finally, when I finished Proust, I went back to this book and started reading it again. And then yeah. I sort of plowed through the rest of it. What he does in this book is he kind of guides you through the novel. It's written for a general reader, but like he's a, he's a good lecturer and he can kind of feel that come across in his chapters. So I really liked his Joyce chapter. It made mm. me want to reread Ulysses. Long oh, story wow. short. So I did pick it up yeah. again. And I, I got through, I think I got through the first chapter over the break. Um, but I wanted to quote a couple things from this book just to get your response to it. And then we'll get back yeah. to talking about the seminar experience. Mm -hmm. just, I was curious of what you thought. I wanted to sound you out on this. So he says, mm -hmm. he says in his third book, Ulysses, uh, Joyce permanently altered the course of modern fiction. This masterpiece is something of a nonstop series of narrative explosions. I like that, narrative yeah. explosions. Challenging our habits of reading and thinking, offering us the liveliest and most brilliant rendition of living in the world that we are ever likely to come across. First and foremost, among the things exploded in Ulysses are our customary grids for imagining who we are and how we live. The daunting strangeness of Joyce's book is if we know how to see it right, profoundly intimate and illuminating, enabling us to discover our own daytime and nighttime antics in shockingly fresh ways. He says, Ulysses is no less than a self-help manual, not in the ordinary sense of giving us practical advice, but in the more startling sense of reshaping our grasp of self by making us hear at last our own strange music, the song of body and mind that plays around the clock and constitutes who we are. So everything in this approach is sort of through the lens of like, reading yourself, understanding yourself through these books. But I just wondered what you thought about that. I like a couple things in there, but particularly the exploding of the grid. Can you read that bit yes. again? First and foremost, among the things exploded in Ulysses are our customary grids for imagining who we yeah. are and how we live. Yeah, I really like that. And it makes me think of um, Alison Bechtel's Fun Home, which draws on Ulysses so mightily towards the end of that book. And when you said grid, I sort of leapt to the comics panel, right? Mm. And the ways in which, you know, the self, the subject in comics telling might seem to be kind of encased in, an, in a grid, but yet within that space, there's so much room to do the, exp the narrative experimentation that we find in Joyce, right? I'm thinking of the really famous sequence of panels uh, towards the end of Fun Home where uh, Allison, you know, character, I'm making scare quotes, you can't tell because this is a podcast, but Allison <laughs> character 
um, and Allison narrator are sort of in this sequence of very small panels, a grid really covering the two pages. It's the only time in the, in the book that she does this and she's with her father in the car and they're going to the movies. And it's that moment where she's like, did you know I was gay? And is that why you gave me certain books? Is that why you gave me Colette? And Bechdel narrator, Allison narrator, talks about this as her Telemachus moment, her Telemachus Odysseus moment, where the child and the father, the son really, and the father are looking for some kind of connection. And that's drawing right out of her reading and uh, appropriating of Ulysses. And she uses this tightly constrained visual structure to sort of play with the ways that in that moment, the two of them are sort of stuck in these roles. But then so much of the memoir is sort of exploding constraints on the subject. So I never, you know, I'm always sort of thinking about why Ulysses is so important for Bechtel because it's a novel by like a, a white guy, a dead white guy that is, you know, sort of canonized and held up as this touchstone of culture. And so much of what she's doing in her own work is to kind of subvert some of that. Her using the grid in that moment seems to me to be speaking to Weinstein's point about Joyce wanting to explode those constraints, those frameworks that we, you know, around which we put um, how we think we're supposed to, you know, how we think about the subject. So I like that, I really like that point. And that's sort of maybe way more of a tangent than you want. <laughs> um, so there were two other things about the Weinstein passage that I wanted to say. And one was as a feminist and as a wolf person also, um, I sort of resist the, you know, James Joyce made modernism, <laughs> you know, because I'm thinking about to the lighthouse, I'm thinking about Mrs. Dalloway. Wolf, by the way, really thought Joyce was, you know, kind of gross. Like she thought she compared reading Ulysses to watching an adolescent, like picking their pimples. Like she just thought it was horrible, but yet she returned to the book again and again, trying to fit, I think, you know, trying to come to terms with it. And there's so many other sort of amazing women, modernist writers who, you know, when we talk about who made modernism when we talk about the men of, of the men of 1920 or whatever, I think we need to also just be like, not sure that, you're getting the whole picture there. Yeah. Um, but then the other piece of the Weinstein passage that I really want to sort of lift up and just appreciate is his point about the intimacy of the book. You know, we, in the, in this particular round of the senior seminar, we talked a lot about why certain things are in the book. You know, why do we see Bloom? Can I use bad words here? Why do we see Bloom? Why do we see Bloom like taking a shit? Why do we see Stephen Dedalus picking his nose? why are there farts? Like what, you know, and it, like the body is obviously hugely important and the body as sort of a means of thinking through lived experience. But I think that Weinstein kind of hits it right on the head when he raises the point about intimacy, right? This is intimacy with these characters and it's a different way of thinking about intimacy with ourselves. We, we really grappled quite a lot with that yeah. in, in class. And in fact, Shout out to Riley Smith, who did an amazing final project on smell and odor in Ulysses. 
she began with the question, what does Leopold Bloom smell like? Which as far as I know, has not been addressed <laughs> in the critical literature. And it was just fantastic. It was fantastic. But she, I think, was really getting at the kinds of things Weinstein is raising, the intimacy with others, the intimacy with yourself. And I think we think of intimacy as a reaching out to others. But if you're othered to your own personhood, right, you, you are a stranger to yourself in a way. How, so how do you figure out who that stranger is when it's you, right? And she was just doing all kinds of great stuff with you know, sort of decentering the visual, um, pushing against the ocular centrism of Western thought and Western literature. And are there other ways of representing sense experience and the knowledge gained therefrom? So, so I wanted to ask you about how many times you've taught this seminar at Widener. Is it maybe like four times or so? Or yes. does that sound right? That's, that does sound right. So I'm curious as to how students have reacted to the novel. It's a quite difficult novel. Even for a senior English major, this is a tough read, okay. right? So how do you sell the book? How do you get the students invested in the book? And ha have you seen student reactions change over the years? I mean, every class is different and you, you're, you're, you're spanning like, what, about 16 years or so of having taught this novel. Wow, thanks. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I'm just curious if, if you've seen any change in the way students have responded to the book over the years. Yeah, I think so. Um, and some of that might be a function of, of me changing how I've taught it. So there's always the initial shock to the system, right? Of, you know, what is this? What do you expect me to do with this? I don't know what's happening like that. Like there's just sort of a, I don't know what's happening. And we manage that experience in different ways. So we know we, so we read together, we close read this time around. I use the um, social annotating tool hypothesis. Mm. And we actually used the 1922 digitized first edition uh, put together by the university of Victoria. They did a year of Ulysses and they digitized the book, they got, uh, they videoed lectures, they did Twitter chats, all kinds of stuff like that. So it was very collaborative and it was very collective in its reading practice. And that's something I try to replicate in the classroom. So hypothesis lets me do that. Reading aloud lets me do that. Uh, pulling up a Google doc and having everybody close read together lets me do that. And I think that the sort of communal public experience of reading the book together can help quite a bit because they're bringing a whole lot of stuff to the table that they, they're not even aware that they're bringing. They have prior knowledge, they have expertise. We sort of begin to network together all the things they already know to help them see that this book is more approachable than they think. You know, we spend some time just talking about what happens. We look at the places in Dublin where people are walking. We try to figure out what time of day it is because the more you can situate yourself in the actual lived reality of the novel, the more some of the trickier stuff begins to fall away. And the close reading skills that they've developed over the course of the major, I think really help. Like once there's a moment in the very first episode, Telemachus, where you realize that the narrative point of view has changed in the middle of the paragraph. And once they've gotten that, once they see that happening, they're like, oh, 
okay, I know how perspective works. And now I realize that there is more than one narrator, not just over the course of the novel, not just episode to episode, but paragraph to paragraph, sentence to sentence. And that's the thing that they find most challenging, but it's also the thing that once they've sort of cracked that, they're able to keep going. So they've read other difficult things. Like I remember the group that I did um, this particular round of senior seminar with, they'd done a couple semesters prior to that uh, course on modernism with me. And we read Mrs. Dalloway, which was not, like many of them were not fans. <laughs> they really, they found that to be sort of difficult. But I was able to sort of say, do you remember how much you hated Mrs. Dalloway and how it was doing this thing? I'm sorry to tell you, but this is, it's doing this thing. And, you know, this is what stream of consciousness looks like. This is what the floating narrator looks like. You know how to do this. The other thing that really helps is tapping into their expertise in watching films. So if you can sort of get them to think about the ways that the novel is sort of cinematic in its presentation of the world, that, that, that helps too. And then there's a moment where they're, they're like, oh, I, I get it. And that's usually around the moment where we then go to like Oxen of the Sun or Circe. And they're like, okay, never mind. I don't get it anymore. <laughs> and we have to start again. How long does it take you to get through the book when you do the seminar? Do you like, do you spend like a week per chapter or something? Or how do you, yeah. how do you script it out? I do. I do. So not even like, less than that um we do the first three episodes the steven section in like a week which is not good <laughs> it's just not um let's say that the container of the semester has affordances and constraints right there's some really good stuff you can do in 15 weeks and there's some times when you're just like this is not enough time um so we do you know i tend to focus more of their attention on bloom as a character and so we get into those sections and we kind of go through them week by week. And then we do a week on Penelope. And for a lot of students, they get to Penelope, the final episode, which is the Molly Bloom interior monologue. And their minds are just blown. They're like, the novel ends like this. The novel ends with this character, with this woman. And for some of them, that's when the novel makes sense. Um, which is what Joyce wanted. Joyce referred to it, he referred to the Penelope episode as the clue, the C-L-O-U. So it's a kind of a play on clue, like a clue to unravel the entire mystery of the novel. But it's also the thing that the novel hangs on. If you don't get to that final episode, you are not going to get entirely what the novel is about. And I think by the time they get there, they feel that. And the investment they feel in the work that they've done by the time they get to the end, so much outweighs the beginning. I, I wouldn't say resistance. I've never, ever, ever experienced resistance. Mm -hmm. It's never is there like a, I hate this. I, I cannot go any further with this. It's like the novel teaches you how to read it. Mm -hmm. And so as, you know, e even as every episode is, can even as some episodes can be so different from the ones that precede them, as you go through it, you learn how to do things with it. And so I think once they know that they're learning as they go 
and they see it as a means of developing the intellectual confidence to keep going. They're different readers by the time they get to the end. Cool. Have you seen a change over the years in how the different seminars have responded to the book or is it fairly consistent? I don't think so. The change this year was more in myself, I think. Um, that was my follow-up I... question was how, <laughs> how have you responded over the years? How has your response changed? Has that been a, like a story, a developing storyline, your own reactions to the book? Mm-hmm. So one of the cool things about doing the book for senior seminar and re and returning to it pretty much on like a four-year cycle is because of working with the students and the things that they see in the book and the things that they're prioritizing in their own intellectual life and the critical priorities they develop. I always see something different. I always see something new. I always feel like I'm uh, experiencing entirely new things every time I look at it, which is very cool. This time there was some stuff about the book that really, really troubled me. And, and it's, I'm still grappling with it. So teaching Ulysses sort of in an age of black lives matter, um, teaching Ulysses in an age of me too. These are things that struck me as being necessary to raise, and I'm not sure yet how I want to respond to them myself as a, as a reader and as a teacher. There's been ways that people look at some of the racism in Ulysses and in, in other texts of that time, right? And they say things like, or people have said for a long time, Oh, well, you know, that's the context. That was the time period in which they were writing. And that seems to me to be wholly inadequate as a response. Why is Joyce using the N-word in Ulysses? Why is Bloom thinking this to himself um, aloud for us to see? Like, what, what does this say about how he views the world? What does this say about the representation of the other in the imaginary of the book? Which as we know, has profound implications for, you know, not just the imaginary of the book, but our actual real lives, right? How do I teach the Gertie McDowell episode, the Nausicaa chapter, you know, in an age of Me Too? Like, how do I do that? And I've, I've dealt with some of this before, especially the Me Too question. Um, I was part of a round table and then a cluster of, of short essays for modernism, modernity, um, on teaching the wasteland, T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland in the Age of Me Too. And so I was already sort of primed to be thinking about this. And teaching Ulysses this time just made those questions so much starker for me. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't feel like it's responsible of me to, you know, talk about teaching the book without raising these issues and these concerns and these questions that I'm having. And I'm still trying to work through it. Well, you have about four years to, to figure it out. <laughs> right, right. Well, and that was, that was the other thing. I mean, I think this is a serious question. Um, as instructors, as teachers of literature and writing, right, we have, we have the 15 weeks, we have the syllabus. What do we choose to put in that space, right? 
is this the best thing to put in that space? Or should there be other things in this space? Should I not be do not should I not be teaching this book and should I be teaching something else? But I'm thinking about it a lot. Do you have a, any favorite passages from Ulysses that you want to share? I do. I do. I have my copy right here. So this is the gobbler. So this is this is from Lestragonians, the episode where Bloom has lunch. And this is my favorite passage. It's got a little bit of like hotness in it. So Bloom is having lunch. He's having the gorgonzola sandwich and the glass of burgundy. Um, he's just, he tried to go into another pub and there were men eating and they were being disgusting and spitting on the floor. And he's like, this is gross. And so he goes to Davy Burns pub and he has a, like a nice, lovely sandwich and a glass of wine. And as he's sitting and finishing his lunch and finishing the wine, he starts to remember how he got together with Molly. Page 144 in the Gobbler edition, and it's lines, oh, he gives line numbers, 91, 92, 93, 94, 896 to 918. Stuck on the pane, two flies buzzed, stuck. Glowing wine on his palate lingered, swallowed, crushing in the wine press grapes of burgundy. Sun's heat it is, seems to a secret touch telling me memory. Touched his sense moistened remembered, hidden under wild ferns on hoth below us bay sleeping sky. No sound, the sky. The bay purple by the lion's head, green by drumlek, yellow green towards Sutton, fields of undersea, the lines faint brown in grass, buried cities. Pillowed on my coat, she had her hair, earwigs in the heather scrub, my hand under her nape, you'll toss me all, oh wonder. Cool, soft with ointments, her hand touched me, caressed. Her eyes upon me did not turn away. Ravished over her, I lay, full lips, full open, kissed her mouth, yum. Softly she gave me in my mouth the seed cake warm and chewed. Mawkish pulp, her mouth had mumbled sweet sour of her spittle. Joy, I ate it, joy. Young life, her lips that gave me pouting. Soft, warm, sticky gum jelly lips. Flowers her eyes were, take me willing eyes. Pebbles fell, she lay still, a goat, no one. High on Ben Hoth, rhododendrons, a nanny goat, walking sure-footed, dropping currants. Screened under ferns, she laughed warm folded. Wildly I lay on her, kissed her eyes, her lips, her stretched neck beating. Woman's breasts full in her blouse of nuns veiling, fat nipples upright. Hot I tongued her, she kissed me, I was kissed. All yielding, she tossed my hair, kissed, she kissed me. Me, and me now, stuck, the flies buzzed. Lovely. Yeah. It's beautiful, <laughs> it's, it, it sounds like prose poetry to me. Yeah. It's very lyrical. Yeah, and if, yeah, and if you see, you know, on the on the page, like the I tried to get it with the phrasing, but there's like sentence fragments and you know punctuation to sort of make pauses and make spaces and it's fragments of like almost this like mosaic of memory here. What makes that a favorite passage in a book for you? Um, well, that's my favorite episode, I think, mm -hmm. um, and. It's my favorite, I mean, the sensuality of the passage I really like. I like 
how the moment of just the lunch prompts this memory for him um, and the sort of impressionistic quality of the passage, the way it's bracketed by the him now um, and the stuckness, but also that passage is mirrored by the very end of Penelope where she remembers the same moment. And so the final moment of the book is her having the same memory that he has, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages earlier. And so, so much of the novel is about this sort of disintimacy that the two of them are experiencing and the, the, the distance, the sort of gulf between the two of them that in some ways is, that is folded back together by those two passages you know, appearing in these two separate consciousnesses. Awesome. Yeah. Now I want to read Ulysses even more. <laughs> <laughs> so my final question would be, what have you been reading lately? What's on your bookshelf or by the nightstand? Like what, ah! what, are you, what are you, what have you, any good books that you've been reading? Oh my God. So I felt you were going to ask me this question. And so I've been thinking about it a lot and realizing how many books I have that are like partly read, <laughs> like just everywhere. Um, so I will say, I'm going to answer, I'm going to give you a couple answers because, um, you know, I read for work, obviously I read for research, but then I also have stuff that I get kind of weirdly obsessed with and I read that stuff. So for work, I'm reading C.L.R. James's novel from the 30s called Minty Alley. Some people know C.L.R. James as an important Marxist thinker, um, important for you know sort of a global move for movement for Black liberation. But he also wrote a novel, and it's considered um, the first novel of the Windrush generation, um, the group of migrants who left the West Indies and moved to London as the British Empire was, you know, being dismantled. And I'm teaching that in the spring. And so I'm reading that. And then I'm reading for my research, I'm writing a biography of Howard Cruz, who is a gay comics artist. And I am reading his comics and assorted stuff related to him. I highly recommend his graphic novel, Stuck Rubber Baby which is about growing up in the South during the civil rights era and coming to terms with being gay. Um, for fun, I am reading the new biography of James Beard, The Man Who Ate Too Much, I think it's called. And that biography is not the first biography of James Beard, but it is the first biography that could be considered a queer biography that makes his, uh, makes the fact of him being gay, part of the life writing. And James Beard, some of some people may know, major figure in American cuisine, in food in the 50s and 60s. Really important person for the food scene. So I dip in and out of a lot of stuff. Me too. That's usually how I read. I'm like five, six books at the same time. Oh, yeah. I just yeah. wade between them. Well, Janine, thanks for kicking off the podcast series. I hope this is the first of many conversations that we'll have. Thanks for having me. This is, I think it's just going to be so fabulous for people to hear the voices of English and creative writing in the English suite. Thank you for doing it. Sure.
Thanks for listening to the English Suite podcast. To follow the podcast, go to anchor.fm slash widener hyphen English hyphen suite or subscribe using your favorite podcasting application. If you'd like to send feedback or suggestions, you can email us at WideneringlishSuite at gmail.com. That's all one word, WideneringlishSuite at gmail.com. Until next time, so long.